find the little book of Job. It's actually not a little book. There's uh, 40-some chapters. And um, uh, by the way, I'll, you'll be glad to know that, that John Kimbrough and I are still friends. Well, I think. Uh, he spoke to me this morning. You know, I always wonder after the OU Texas game whether my Texas fan friends will still be friends. And so far, John and I are still speaking to each other. So it, it's okay, you know. There's another year, you know, there was last year, anyway. Um, now, uh, we're going to go to the book of Job, so find that. It's right before the book of Psalms. So typically, I, I will tell people when they're trying to navigate their Bibles, go to the middle of your Bible, and you usually find, fall in Psalms. And then back left a book, and you're in Job, and it's kind of a longer book, 42 chapters, I think. We'll be in chapter 24 next week. We're just hanging out in it a couple of weeks, um, and... Um, this week we're in 19, Job 19. But before we get there, I want to give you a little bit of background. Now, I believe, you know, we talked last week uh, from the book of Habakkuk about Habakkuk had kind of his yet moment. He had questioned God and asked God, why don't you do something about this? And, and then he came to this, this faith statement in the middle of it where he says, you know, even though, even though, even though, yet I will praise you. Now, it's interesting, uh, I believe, um, in, in kind of a different kind of a way, uh, there is a yet moment in Job's life. Go to 13.15, 13.15, we're going to be over in 19, but I want you for just a minute to go to 13.15. Somebody read it. Though God slay me, yet I'm going to boast in him. Now that's a really interesting uh, perspective on your life, isn't it? You know, God, you can kill me and I'm still going to serve you. That's kind of where Job was at this point in his life. We're going to talk about that a little bit today. Um, uh, uh, let me give you just a little bit of background. Um, I, I think one, one of the things that Job is dealing with here is that he didn't have what you and I have today in our legal system as, uh, that is called the presumption of innocence. All right? Job didn't get the benefit of the doubt from anybody around him. Everyone assumed what about Job's calamity? It was his fault because he was a sinner. You've got to hang on to that thought because it factors heavily into the theology of Job, which, by the way, is put in our Old Testament. It's given us in our Old Testament to help us handle this huge issue of what about the suffering of people who are righteous? Um, that's kind of going to be a problem for them. So uh, God himself gave Israel laws to protect the innocent. Uh, in other words, it had laws against bearing false witness, um, in fact, if you bore false witness in a courtroom against um, one of your um, uh, countrymen, then if literally the, um, the punishment that you, that you thought should have fallen on them would fall on you. That's kind of how serious that issue was. Uh, two witnesses in a, in a Jewish courtroom were required to secure a conviction, not just one witness, but two. Uh, so Job believed in that kind of justice. But one problem, as far as Job could tell, was that his friends, and I use that word really loosely, his friends did, never gave him the benefit of the doubt. 
in dealing with the issues he was dealing with. They refused to give him the benefit of the doubt. Now, uh, we're going to need to go a couple of places here to kind of get to Job's story. But if you can remember uh, back to what you know about the story of Job, um, uh, the bulk of this, the book of Job features conversations between Job and these three friends who came to console him. All four of them, okay, now by the way, it's okay to chuckle about that because I don't want this kind of friends, Jim. Just, sorry. I told Jim, I got a call this week on my phone from Montana, and you've been in Montana till when? But you came back when? Okay, I got this call from Montana, and I really thought, I didn't answer, but I thought, Jim's in jail, and he's needing me to come get him out. You know, I didn't say I wouldn't have come. I just didn't answer the phone. Um, I did think of you. Does that count? It's Montana. Maybe it's Jim. You didn't leave a voicemail, so I figured, you know, you would leave me a voicemail. You you do frequently. So, Uh, Job and his friends share the simplistic view that bad things only happen to bad people. Now, has that philosophy gone away completely? (laughs) No, not really. In fact, don't we still occasionally wonder, okay, God, what do I do to tick you off? Okay, that's kind of another uh, presumption of that. If they believed, if you want to know whether people are righteous or not, all you got to do is see how well they're faring. Are they thriving? Well, they must be doing right. Are they suffering? Then they must be doing wrong. They assumed that Job was guilty of some grave offense. Now, here's the problem with this. Job had no thought to that and had no pushback to them except to say, and he maintained it all through the book, I'm innocent. I can't think of anything I've done that would warrant this calamity that's come upon me. Now, let's talk for a minute about the calamity. What happened to him? Kind of everything. You're right. Uh, Kids. um, Okay, I'm going to be ugly here for a minute, so I'm giving you a warning. Everybody in his family was killed but his wife, and I wonder at some point if he wished she would have been in that deal. (laughs) You know, she was no help either. Why don't you just curse God and die? You know, that, that's her best advice to him. Yes. I would just like to remind everyone in this room that his wife also lost her children. She did. So she was affected by it too. She had a sick husband. I knew I would take it on the chin for that one. Oh, aren't you lively today? This is going to be good. This is going to be good. (laughs) Thank you, Gloria, for keeping me honest. Now, okay, but so, Joanne, I like your thought. Really, what didn't happen to him? He loses his kids in kind of one awful accident. Um, Then then he he loses his wealth and eventually loses his health. And, uh, you know, all that happens pretty quickly. Now, Let's deal with, let's read a little bit of this and deal with kind of what happens in the aftermath, okay? Bob, you feel like reading? Can you read the first seven verses of 19? 
please. Okay, now I want you to turn back to chapter 2. We're going to look there in just a minute. But basically, Job is dealing with his friends, and he's pushing back a little bit. I'm saying, I am innocent, and you guys are really not my friends. Now, um, Job would have been in much better shape without, in some ways, the help of his friends. Okay, This help was not very helpful. Now, I I find it intriguing here, if you'll go back with me to chapter 2, that they were well-intentioned to begin with, and they actually had a pretty good start. Um, Job loses uh, his, his wealth. He loses his family. He begins to lose his health pretty quickly. Now look at verse 11, okay? Now when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that came upon him, they came, each one from his own place. Okay, so they came to him. Got to give him credit for that. Names them here. Eliphaz, the Temanite. Bildad the shoe height, he was a little short guy. <laughs> Sorry, couldn't resist. And Zophar the Namathite, and they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and comfort him. They texted each other and said, let's go see Job. So they did. And when they lifted up their eyes at a distance and didn't recognize him, why didn't they recognize him? Because he was that sick. They raised their voices and wept. Is that a bad response? No, that's actually a good response. And each of them tore his robe and they threw dust over their heads toward the sky. That was a, that was a, a, a common uh, response of grief. So they're grieving with him. Then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. They didn't just come and hang out for 30 minutes and leave with no one speaking a word to him. For they saw that his pain was very great. Now I'm going to submit to you that they did really well until they opened their mouth. It's just the truth. Literally, if we stopped right there, you could commend uh, uh, Eliphaz and Bildad and um, what's the other guy's name? Zophar. You could could, uh, commend all these guys for being there for their friend Job until they started talking. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm going to tell you what the, what the New Testament says about what to do when a friend of yours is going through a grieving time, a time of grief. If you want to, you can turn with me to Romans 12, 15. I'm going to try to quote it as best I can. This is, comes as a command from the Apostle Paul to those with whom he is working and who he's teaching in the book of Romans, Romans 12, 15. And he's going to give us the appropriate attitude and the appropriate response when a friend of yours is going through something. Now, it's actually going to give us the appropriate response for when a person's going through something good as well as something bad. Somebody read Romans 12, 15. Okay. 
Okay, so simply I can say, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Now, uh, to kind of unpack this for a second, if you're going through something good, I need to help you celebrate that instead of becoming envious of that in some way. Okay? Wow, I wish that was happening to me. That's not the response. The response is to say, man, isn't that great? I'm so happy for you. Let's throw a party and celebrate. But when I'm going through something difficult, when you're going through something difficult, my appropriate response is to weep with you. They got that right to begin with. They were weeping with the one who was weeping. I can't imagine the depth of his grief. Gloria, you're right. I can't imagine the depth of Mrs. Job's grief either. But at least Mr. Job had three friends who for a time, for seven days, sat with him and wept with him. I long for a friend like that. Thank the Lord I have some like that who will weep with me when I weep. So at first they did a good job, then not so much. What you've got to kind of catch here from chapter 19 is what tormented Job in verse 1. You can say, yeah, it's his situation in life. It's all these things he's going through. That's true. But what does he say tormented him in 19.1? Words. And they shared a bunch of them. After those seven silent days, he wished they'd shut up again. Word after word after word torments Job here. Now, by verse 3, the modest rebuke, this kind of they began to say, what have you done to make, to make all this come upon yourself? That, this kind of modest rebuke has now become really bold, shameless, relentless. Um, I read this week, <coughs> kind of being reminded of the question, and, and I, I want us to just park here for just a minute as we apply this piece of, of the lesson. Uh, I don't want anybody to ever say, of me when I leave their side were friends like that guy who needs enemies. There is a modern day term for that, for a friend who really is an enemy. It's called a frenemy. You heard that? A frenemy. Frenemy. I just don't want to be a frenemy. I don't want to be the one who pretends to be a friend but really has, um, uh, has not the motive of helping me. Even possessing good motives is no guarantee that, that we won't do more harm than good with a friend who needs a shoulder to cry on. So I want to be sure to check my motive in this thing. And I want to be a real friend, not a frenemy. Job had at least three of those, and they weren't helping at all. Look at verse 4. Is Job confessing in verse 4? Even if I've truly erred, my error lodge, uh, lodges with me. You think he's, he, he's saying, no, I am guilty. I don't think so. I don't think so. I think he's given the even if here. Um, I think Job is maintaining his innocence. Look, somebody read, uh, jump over to 27.6 and read that one for us. This is several chapters later. Okay, now this is after this. So you've got to assume that it's also true in 19 if it's true in 27. He's saying, 
I'm innocent. In fact, that's the great head-scratching problem here. He's innocent. Even though his friends are trying to play God in his life, Job maintains his own innocence here. Now, what I believe that is one of the great values of the book of Job, as we get to verse 5 and 6 here in 19, is it helps us with what Job is dealing with because he is believing, Job believes that the common belief system that we talked about a little bit ago has broken down. Okay? The common belief system that everybody maintained that had any kind of a knowledge of God had this common theology, common belief system. And Job is saying something is goofed up about this theology. What's the common belief system? We stated it a little bit ago. If you're sick, it's because you've sinned. If, you are, uh, if you're going through some kind of calamity in your life, it's because God is mad at you because you did something wrong. Okay, that's the common belief system. Conversely, and by the way, this, this continued in Jesus' day. Conversely, if you were really holy, then you were also healthy, wealthy, and all those things. Okay? Now, Job says there is something wrong, and this is the key to understanding this. There, this is something wrong with the common belief system, with the, with the belief system of my friends. And frankly, I think he's going to admit there's something wrong with my own belief system because I'm innocent and I can't figure this out. Okay? Now, I want us to go to the very first of the book, to Job 1. And let's read the first couple of verses of the chapter. Okay? Job 1. And we're going to see the backstory. All right? There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. So he was a good guy, one of the really good guys. He had seven sons and three daughters were born to him. All right? And it talks about his possessions from that one. He had a great family. Everything was going well for him and he was righteous. Now look at verse 7. The Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there's no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man fearing God and turning away from evil. And the rest of chapter 1 and into a little bit of chapter 2 is the, um, uh, the uh, conversation or kind of the um, negotiation that takes place between God and the devil about the fate of Job. It's really, really intriguing. Now that's the backstory. God literally gives Satan permission to test Job in all of these calamitous ways. But here's the problem with that in Job's mind. All right? This cause and effect theology that Job has lived with all of his life and that all of his countrymen live with, live with that if, there, if there's something going on in my life, there's a direct correlation to it, either good or evil. What Job doesn't know, Job knows and believes that God has blessed him because he's righteous. Job does not know chapter 2. He doesn't know that God, literally the, the rest of chapter 1 and into chapter 2, Job doesn't know about the conversation that's going on between God and Satan about himself. 
He doesn't know that. And so, he's dealing here. Job uh, doesn't know that, in fact, when, when all this calamity comes on him, I could argue it this way. Job only knows chapter 2. He doesn't know chapter 1. Job knows all this stuff has happened to him, and it's coming down every day. He doesn't want to get up because it's like, what's going to happen to me even worse today? It literally, several days, months like that. And he's feeling worse and worse and worse every day. He knows that reality. He doesn't know the reality of chapter 1, the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, where God and Satan are saying, uh, Satan saying, yeah, you know, the only reason, the only reason uh, Job serves you is because you bless him. The only reason he praises you is because you bless him. Hate Satan, don't you? God says, go ahead. I know him better than you know him. Really, what happened to Job, you could call a badge of honor. Not one that he's going to like. You ever had one of those periods of your life where you look back on it and you thought, boy, God trusted me with some stuff that I wish he wouldn't have trusted me with. It, I grew like crazy, but I sure didn't like it. I don't think he expected me to like it. But I loved him in the, in the process and I reached out to him in the process. Here, the problem with this is Job only has the reality of what's going on in his life. He doesn't know about this other conversation that takes place. And he also is born with, burdened down with, the, the theology of his friends and his former theology that says, if something like this is going wrong, it's your fault. You've sinned. And yet, every day, he says, what did I do? What did I do? It's kind of an amazing turn in, um, in theology here. In verse 7, Job desperately cries out for justice. And for several verses, from, chapter, from verse 8 to verse 22, he's going to cry out and cry out and cry out for justice. It is as if um, he has been beaten and bruised. And he's laying in the city square, <clears throat> been physically beaten and bruised. It's like that. And he's crying out, won't somebody help me here? And that happens for several verses. And it's into that context that these frenemies walk. And they don't help him at all. Now, let's go on. We're going we're to skip beyond those. Go down to verse 23. Somebody read 23 down through 27. He begins here by asking for, he longs for a permanent record of his case. He longs for something that would be written down that will kind of vindicate him when he's long gone. Did he get his wish? Oh, in spades, did he? We're still talking about it probably 4,000 years later. He probably lived somewhere around 2000 BC. He doesn't know that in his lifetime. Vindicated amazingly well, eventually, right? 
becomes a hero to you and me. He's not going to know that in his lifetime, even though he's crying out for it here. Now, it's really important that we don't miss the original lesson of uh, what is being dealt with here in, in the book of Job. Uh, let's begin again with verse 25. Um, I, I'm going to read verse 25 again. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives and that at the last he will take his stand on the earth. Now, let's think about this for just a minute. This is the, this is the money verse, really, of the whole book of Job. I know that my Redeemer lives. In your Bible, is the word Redeemer capitalized? Okay, that's a late addition. In, in Hebrew, it would not have been capitalized. Hebrew, Hebrew used all capital letters anyway, so it, it wouldn't have been there. This has been added editorially. So when I hear that, or when I would hear, uh, for instance, Jim Cherry sing, I know my Redeemer lives, which is one of my favorite uh, arias from, um, from Handel, I, I recognize, you know, we've got New Testament theology at work there, and Job doesn't have that. I know that God lives, and he's going to be there. So I'm not sure that that's exactly what Job is dealing with here. Uh, the concept of a redeeming Messiah probably is unknown to Job uh, if he lives just after the time of Abraham. Salvation history is just kind of beginning. Uh, some interpreters focus on the fact that the ancient people believed that the dead existed as disembodied spirits. And you can read about that in 1 Samuel, uh, where uh, Samuel's called up from the dead, you know, that whole, whole kind of thing. So is he talking about that? I'm not really sure about that. It makes good uh, Halloween talk, but I'm not really sure about that. Um, that doesn't account for, by the way, later on Job's going to say, I will see God in my flesh. And that's, that doesn't sound like he thinks he's going to come back as a spirit. So does it mean that Maybe Job will be vindicated before he dies. Okay? So the idea here is, if we begin to think about this, is it possible that Job considers the one responsible for his dilemma also his redeemer? Now, in his mind, he thinks God has done all this to him. But he also has enough faith left to say, I've got a redeemer. Now, I've got to kind of deal with this a little bit because if I said, and I'm looking at the guys in the left corner back here, if I say out loud, God is good, how are you going to respond? All the time. And if I say all the time, okay, okay, I know that we've, we've gotten that going, all right? But do we think about it? Literally, the old English word from which we get the word God the old English word that in our language is translated God means the good or the good one. That emphasizes what we're acknowledging here, right? God didn't do this stuff to Job, but Job doesn't know that. Job doesn't know about the conversation between God and Satan that has ensued. But he somehow believes that there is still a redeemer. It's pretty wonderful. If you get to thinking about it. Now, Job believes that he will either be vindicated at death, after death, or before death. And he's holding out to get vindicated before death. All right? Now, let's look at, just for a minute, go to 7-9. Go back a few pages to 7-9. Somebody read 7-9. 
Everybody got it? As a Okay, what they believed, many of them believed, they didn't believe in resurrection after death, like you and I do. Jesus has certainly not come uh, in physical form and died on the cross and rose from the dead. That's yet a couple thousand years to come in Job's day. So it's not about that. So if Job, in Job's day, they believed, okay, you live and you die, and that's kind of it. Most people believe that. A lot of people still believe that. He must be thinking that before my death, something is going to happen that will vindicate me. Uh, it's pretty wonderful to think about. So, he continues to maintain his innocence in spite of all these accusations. Um, uh, I, I think it's kind of wonderful. Let's go on to 28 and 29. Let's see if we can apply this before we go. All right? Somebody read 28 and 29. Okay, got to catch this. He's quoting their words back to them. And basically, he's saying something tantamount in verse 28 to what we would say, um, um, well, let's not waste our words on this guy because he's, he's guilty, but he's not owning up to it. So basically, he's mocking them back to themselves. They are not moved by his plea of innocence. So Job just becomes kind of resigned through the indictment of his friends. There's no change that he's going to be able to, to uh, bring about in their indictment. He just kind of resigned to that. But he warns them and argues with them. Uh, those who indict the innocent will receive judgment themselves. Now, I want you to look at with me one more plate. <coughs> Excuse me. Let's go to 42.7. <coughs> Sorry. And we're going to look at Eliphaz, the Temanite. All right. It came about. Now, this is kind of in the postlude to this. <clears throat> it came about after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends, because you've not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Is Job going to be vindicated before his three frenemies? From the mouth of God. Got to love that, right? I don't know how Job responded to that. Um, you know, I know how I would have. Nanny, nanny, boo-boo. Okay, but uh, yeah. All right. He argues that those who indict the innocent here, Job says, will receive judgment themselves, and they do. Now, what I want to leave you with here, I want to give you three things to kind of consider, and let me, let me fill in the blanks that are left, and then I'm going to give you three things to kind of consider. Job reaches out to God in hope, even when all seems pretty hopeless. I think it's interesting here that even Job believed that God would one day, hopefully in his lifetime, Sort it all out. You ever, you ever ask God to just sort it all out? Uh, there are some people 
who pray that about our political enemies. They, and they'll say that kind of an interesting way, Lord, uh, just kill them all and you sort them out. You know what I mean? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when there's some injustice going on in your life or there's some issue in your life that is, you remember, we've been talking about it, it's right here. Every time you pray, it's right here. When you go to bed at night, it's right here. When you wake up, it's right here. It's that struggle of your life, whatever it is going on right now. It's that which you pray about more than anything else. And aren't there times when you want to say, God, sort this out. Straighten it out. I'm, I want justice. Like Job cried out for in verse, 22, uh, verse 8 through 22 in, in, in chapter 9 here. Well, I, I want to say that when I'm going through a period of that time and I need to be reaching out to God, even though it all seems kind of hopeless, I, I, want, I want you to kind of go with me on three different ideas here. First of all, you and I know both chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Job and what follows. He didn't. Okay? We know that God is good. We know it. <clears throat> and when things aren't going right in my life, the basic cry of faith in my life has got to be, Lord, I know you're good. I know you're good. I don't get this, but I know you're good. Okay? So we've got to remember what chapter 1 and 2 of Job tell us, even though Job didn't have that advantage. By the way, can't you more appreciate Job 19.25? For a guy who didn't know what was going on, he just knew horrible things were happening to him, to say, I know my Redeemer lives. Second, there is no quid pro quo in serving God or not serving Him. Just want you to know that. Oh, there are some things that if you do them, uh, you're going to pay the piper. You know that's true. But generally, I can't uh, try to live an innocent, righteous, serving life and expect then nothing ever to go wrong in my existence. Why? Not because necessarily of my sin, although there's some correlation there, but because there's sin existent in this world. And there's an enemy, a Satan, in charge of this world that I don't have a whole lot of control over other than to say, leave me alone. Okay? So there's no kind of quid pro quo between righteousness and health and righteousness and wealth and all those things. Third, you and I have a resurrected Redeemer. <laughs> Job knew nothing of him. You and I know him. We know him personally. If Job can find hope How, more, how much more should we? With a resurrected Redeemer who said to you, because I live, you too shall live. One who has said, uh, come ye that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Uh, time after time after time saying um, to you, 
I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Saying to you, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth. And so when that thing, that clouds my faith and my vision, begins to hound me, I've got to remember that I have a resurrected Redeemer. I just want you to think of two words this week. When you're praying in your prayer closet and that thing comes up that challenges your faith, I want you to say two words. And I want you to say them to God and to Satan and to yourself. You ready? This is hard. You ready? I know. I know. I know. You know, there are times in my life when I just have to say to God, I don't get all this, but I know you. I know. It doesn't really matter because I know. I know. There's no doubt here. I know. You'll carry me through it. I know you. Because God is good all the time. I know. Bless you. We'll be in chapter 24 next week. I'll see you there.